Lord, thank you for how you are so kind to pursue us in the places where we have uh, disordered loves. We love things uh, too little and too much. Uh, We don't love good things enough and we love bad things maybe too much. Uh, Lord, thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to come meet us in our weakness and our trials um, and even in our victories. Lord, we pray that you would continue your work uh, in this world, uh, not only throughout the world, but also here right now, that uh, we pray that you would be present with us, that you would soften our ears and our hearts, um, open our ears, I guess, soften our hearts, open our eyes, that we might see your son Jesus more clearly and that we we pray by your grace that you would give us strength to push and look in the areas maybe about Jesus that make us uncomfortable and that we don't really like if we're honest. Uh, Father, would you be with me and guide and guard my words uh, as we talk about this amazing uh, passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, C.S. Lewis was uh, one of my favorite authors, and he lived in Britain in the 50s. Some of you may know him, Um, but he writes this. uh, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what C.S. Lewis is pushing on right there, I think for us, is something that as we come to John chapter six, uh, we need to wrestle with that. Uh, and just as I, as I prayed, uh, I I think most of us could probably relate with the fact that we probably have things that we love and enjoy, and maybe we love those things a little bit too much. And then uh, the, you know, I love chips too much. That is a part of my stomach. <laughs> I mean, that's a frivolous, that's, but it's true. Um, there are things that we enjoy and we pursue and we're willing to trade. We can't have everything, right? And we're willing to trade oftentimes lesser things uh, or good things to get lesser things. And actually was thinking about the, um, maybe this happened to you with like Halloween candy, like people who are wanting to trade up their Halloween candy. I don't know if you can remember uh, way back when, when you had it, uh, but there, there were some people at our house. Um, oh, we, we play this game. It was hysterical. Um, so we passed out trick-or-treat candy at our house uh, and we had a bowl of candy and on top of the candy, we put a potato and like held it out. And so the kids could choose whatever they wanted. And there were so many kids. We went through a whole bag of potatoes. Like they were like, <laughs> potato. And then there was one kid, you know, and, and they would get, would, the, would you get, let them get two things? If they wanted two things, they could have two things. But then there was, it was one one little kid, I don't know, he was about three. He got potato and then, you know, and Brett was like, well, you can choose something else. And he was like, carrot. <laughs> it's 
because we had we were running out of potatoes and we put a carrot there. Anyway, so there's probably a lesson in there. I don't know for us. Maybe maybe don't come to my house when we're you're if you're going to trick or treat. Uh, maybe that's part of the lesson. But uh, you know, and I don't know what happened. I did think about what happened when those kiddos came home and they were going through their. I mean, they were all super excited about potato because a potato is big and you're like yeah this is awesome but I don't know if somebody tried to eat the the raw potato if you've ever tried to do that you probably are like hmm that was a swing and a miss on that when you could have had like a Twix or a Butterfinger or something that would be more interesting um yeah, so that's kind of where I'm pushing in is like we've seen this in John's gospel. God has been holding out by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come live and dwell among us and reveal God to us. Jesus holds out. Jesus is a source of life and light that John's been depicting for us, and he holds out for us abundant joy, fullness of life, hope, grace, blessing in God. And uh, we've seen then uh, two developing responses as we've been going through the gospel of John. And so we've, we've seen that there are uh, two kind of divergent responses. One, some of those who hear God's voice in Jesus and respond with joy and belief. And, uh, and that belief grows. And we also see that there are others who uh, hear and see Jesus but they reject him. They're not interested in what Jesus has on offer. That does not align with how they understand God working, and that's just not what they're looking for. In fact, he, we're going to see, not only do we see them reject him, but we have seen some growth in unbelief. Well, friends, we're going to, not. A, I mean, spoiler alert, we're, as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see those who believe increase in their belief and grow. And we're also going to see unbelief grow and grow to the point where Jesus, there's so much anger and hatred for Jesus that he ends up on the cross, right? Because that unbelief is growing. And so, um, yeah, we're going to continue to see that. And we'll see both of those responses tonight. We'll see that Jesus doesn't come and just reveal himself once. Uh, he's persists in doing that. And we're seeing tonight two signs. He, he does these things. So he, he acts in the world uh, in a, like, and this is only 21 verses that we're going to be reading tonight. And we're not going to pa- unpack everything. Um, but he does things and the weighty and powerful things that he does uh, are signs. They mean something more than what's on the surface. And they require us to think about it and to dig deeper. And it's sort of like an iceberg, you know, what you see on the surface and then what it actually means that Jesus uh, has done these things. And that's the way uh, Jesus reveals himself in, uh, in John. John has that for us. And he records this signs for us and just straight up, oh yeah, so open up your Bibles to John or turn them on. You can use one of the Pew Bibles um, if that if you didn't bring one tonight, and um, look in the table of context, t- contents if you need to find John. Um, and so, just to be straight up front, John, the, who I, we take here at BSF to be the author of this gospel, 
uh, of John uh, is, is not unbiased about Jesus. He has things that he's writing and he wants these aims. He wants us as readers to uh, understand these things and respond in a certain way. And so uh, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and these should be kind of bookmarked as we're going through the gospel of John, everything probably kind of connects back to these. Uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, verse 30 in chapter 20, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is overtly what, uh, and you might not be in that space where you believe or receive Jesus in that way. But just so you know, that's what we're studying. That's what John is hoping that these, uh, what he has written will lead us to do. Okay. So, uh, we're, we are studying John six tonight. So you can turn to John six. And as you see, uh, and you probably discussed a little bit in your group or maybe a lot, John six is so rich and important. We're taking three weeks to study it. So this is week one. And we're going to be looking at basically the core narrative that the rest of those two weeks, we're going to talk about unpacking it. So verses one to 21 is what we're going to cover tonight in chapter six. And then next week and the week after that, we will unpack or study the dialogue that Jesus is uh, helping his readers, or sorry, Jesus is helping the, the, those who were there, and therefore Jesus, uh, John is helping us as readers uh, understand what these verses mean, what we're studying now. Does that make sense? So we're not going to unpack everything tonight, and uh, we'll be coming back to it. And some of it is pretty mysterious too. So, um, okay, so where are we? Uh, I hope that, here's what I hope that we can learn tonight, and I wrote it up here. Jesus has a plan to show us himself that we might believe and have life. Jesus has a plan to show us himself that we might believe in him and have life. And uh, our outline tonight then, we're going to cover it in two divisions, and it's the narrative. With echoes of Exodus, I suggest to you, Jesus is going to do signs of bread in the wilderness, uh, verses 1 to 15, that'll be a first division. And then 16 to 21, uh, Jesus' sign of crossing the sea to his disciples on the storm. Okay, so let's dig into the first, um, the first division there, uh, Jesus' sign of bread in the wilderness. And there are four parts to this little narrative. So ver- chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, and there's setting in verses 1 to 4. Then we have Jesus sees the crowd and tests the disciples in five to nine. Jesus feeds the crowd in 10 to 13. And then we see the crowd's response in 14 and 15. And if we, as we've been doing these last weeks, think about the moment of peak tension, there are a lot of things that we could learn about Jesus from this narrative, right? Uh, But if we take the moment of peak tension as a key to think about the main lessons that John's narrator wants us to learn. Uh, it's about Jesus' identity. We see that in, in uh, probably the peak tension, I suggest to you probably, is uh, right but after verse 13 and before 14. So how the people respond uh, 
when Jesus fed them in the wilderness. And um, so, and they respond with who Jesus is. Surely this is the prophet who is to come in the world. And it seems like they, in verse five, they were trying to make him king by force. So it's, it focuses on Jesus's identity. So we're going to try to follow that too. So when we get lost in this passage uh, or in chapter six in general, we should, I suggest to you think about, okay, what does this passage say about Jesus and what can we learn about what John is trying to teach us? So uh, let's look briefly at the setting there, verses one to four. So sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw his, the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And so we see in this, we get all the the who, the, the, our main characters, uh, and the where. They're up in the north uh, of Israel. Oh, I forgot to draw the map. Uh, and then we see the when the Jewish Passover feast is near. So that's the time frame. So that's about springtime, April, March, perhaps, uh, depending on the time. And then, uh, but the main character, if we see that, the main actor is Jesus. We see that Jesus crossed to the to this far shore, verse one. Um, he had performed signs. We'd seen that, uh, verse two. So he's the one who really prompted the crowd of people coming. And then he went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. So he's the primary actor. And John doesn't come out point blank to us about this, but uh, with this verse here for the Jewish Passover feast was near. Anybody feel like that is, that was a little weird. It felt a little odd. It's an odd detail because it doesn't directly tie into the storyline. And so uh, I suggest to you that there are numerous places around John 6 where the Passover, the Exodus, how God cared for the people in the wilderness, that history is in the fore. And even the question in the air as we, as we come to chapter six is what Jesus said in uh, chapter two, his enemies in uh, chapter five, 46 and 47. Uh, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. And Moses probably what he's responding to there is saying Moses was thought to have written the primary author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the uh, Old Testament. And then, uh, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So the question is like, well, wait a minute, Jesus, how does Jesus, how does Moses write about you? Because there aren't huge signs in the Old Testament necessarily that say, Jesus, this is about Jesus. A lot of what Moses wrote was narrative. In fact, all of it that he wrote was narrative. Even the law and the, um, in Leviticus and Numbers is framed in narrative. So it's a narrative story. And I suggest to you that John is using a lot of the symbols, uh, in familiar images in John 6. Uh, there's a sea, there's a mountain, there's a crowd that's following him into the wilderness. He feeds them. 
And there's references to the manna in the wilderness that will be a lot through chapter six. Uh, The Exodus is in view. And with those few points, I suggest to you, Jesus is imaging uh, the narrative Exodus. Jesus is the fulfillment, John, I think, wants us to see of everything that Exodus means, which means that there's a greater Exodus that's needed. There's a greater redemption. There's a greater kind of slavery that the people are trapped in. There's a greater kind of living of God's people with God in community with him. This, this greater thing, God has been working all along. He, God has a plan and he's been working history to bring us to this point where Jesus could come and save and redeem in the greater Exodus sort of way and call us out of all the things that enslave us, sin and death, doubt, harm, despair, all those things, and called us into a flourishing relationship with him. Okay, so with that kind of in view, uh, we're probably uh, then going to, in the second part, have those questions in, in mind or be seeing this, uh, the crowd like the, the Exodus community when Israel was led out of Egypt. So uh, the second part, let's read five through nine. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, that was one of his disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite, or maybe uh, a little is a better way to translate that. Uh, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And so note how like the in the setting, we went very quickly and the narrator had us kind of high up. And uh, now here, it's just really slowed down this moment. And uh, these are, it's interesting that Philip and Andrew here are put on the stage and we get their recorded uh, speech because these are two disciples, in fact, two of three who had already said things about Jesus' identity, if you remember that. So just flip back to chapter one. When we first met Jesus and we met right away his disciples, uh, one of the first disciples that are recorded in John's gospel is Andrew. And in chapter one, verse 40, and so... uh, 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And then Philip says, so, and we're going on uh, 143, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, he finds Philip and he said, follow me. And then Philip goes to Nathanael and says, uh, verse 45, I think that is. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So I don't think that's a coincidence. Isn't that interesting that um, people who already had said things which John would agree with uh, that were right about Jesus, that Jesus tests them 
And the idea is, one, Jesus had the right to test them. And two, that they hadn't arrived. If you and I know some true things about Jesus and believe those things, and maybe we're ordering our lives even around those things, Jesus has the right, in fact, probably we should expect it, that he's going to test that. He's going to test our understanding of who he is, not so we can like pass fail, but so that we can grow in our belief, grow in our understanding of who he is. Because here, I mean, and I would have been loved to have been in your discussion, I'm sure there are a lot of things we could think about with like what Philip was thinking, what Andrew was thinking. I mean, they were both in a human way right, right? There was this huge crowd of people, 5,000 men, and maybe with women and children, as many as like 20,000 people. You know, if this is just 12, maybe there were more disciples there at that time, but like a small crowd of people, there, they, there were no human resources to feed them. Even the modest meal that ended up being fed to them, the barley loaves and the fish, right? And then, uh, Andrew, his imagination seems to be developing like, okay, well, like maybe Jesus can do something with a little bit, but it seems like he hadn't quite gotten there, right? And yet, assuming uh, this John's gospel doesn't tell us this explicitly, but probably we're assuming that just like the servants are, were on the front row, had a front row seat in John chapter 12, or sorry, John chapter 2, of seeing the water turn into wine, probably his disciples had this front row seat of seeing somehow in a shocking and yet understated but yet miraculous way, five little loaves and two little fish went out and fed 5,000 to 20,000 people in a way that it's, and it's so understated there. Do you see that? Like, uh, I guess as we go on to this next section, um, our third section, we see actually executing his plan. So Jesus already has a plan of what he's going to do, which reminds us that when God led the people out of Israel, out of slavery, into the wilderness, and the people are like, oh no, we don't have anything to drink. Oh no, we don't have anything to eat. This is terrible. God already had a plan had already had a plan for how he was going to care for them, how he's going to feed them. When God leads people into the wilderness, wilderness, he has a plan. So we see here in this very understated and mysterious way uh, what Jesus does in verses 10 to th- uh, 13, this third part. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had, when they had all had enough to eat or they were filled is better, probably a more literal translation. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the piece of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So very understated, right? What actually did happen? I don't think John 
John doesn't invite us into that space. And I imagine if you and I were there, it wouldn't be like we would see lightning flash and, you know, the neon lights would go off. But it would be just in that very quiet, understated way that somehow there kept being enough. And they kept passing and sharing. And uh, he, uh, but it was, it seems clear that uh, Jesus is the one who has, who has done this, right? In this account, whether, you, whether you're like, wait, Vicki, this is crazy and supernatural and I don't believe that. Um, like in this account, that's what he did, right? And I suggest to you, I mean, you and I might have questions like, are you kidding me? Like how could the laws of physics and chemistry and conservation of matter work like that? Um, my friends, that, that's exactly the point with this passage. Ancient people were not idiots. They were not like, oh, somehow, miraculously, five loaves turns into 20, and then, you know, like a magic box or something. This is exactly the point. And um, so that's what we as readers and what they had to wrestle with. And the crowd gets this right uh, in, in the sense that they, they knew it was Jesus who did it? Like we can see that in verse, uh, what is it, 26? And he's talking to the crowd at this point. This Jesus, I tell you the truth, you are looking, me, looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So they knew that it came through him, right? Uh, Jesus is the one who did that. And notice all the verbs like filled, gathered, none lost, none wasted. We could probably spend a lot of time thinking about what does that suggest about Jesus' identity? What kind of a Messiah, anointed king is he? Um, and what kind of, what does he value? Uh, he does provide what he knows that we need. Because here's the question, I think, where was I going to talk about this? Uh, I don't know. But here's a question. Why did Jesus take responsibility for this crowd? The other narratives, other gospel accounts may help us fill in those details. But as I'm modeling here, we can just read one gospel account and listen carefully for what this gospel writer is trying to communicate to us, which doesn't deny the, the trustworthiness of those other gospel accounts. But why did Jesus take responsibility for those people? They didn't ask for it. The disciples certainly didn't expect it. But Jesus is someone, it seems, who assumes responsibility for a big family those who follow him, even if they weren't all following him for the right reasons, which of course he knew that they weren't. Some of them weren't, right? Um, and I think we hear about that later in chapter six. Uh, okay, so then we see, the, we see the, the fourth person's, or fourth res- part of this section, we see the crowd's response. And um, John doesn't tell us, notice the disciples' response. We don't really, we kind of get a glimpse of that at the the end of um, the next little section that we're going to do. But this is just the crowd's response. 
And so reading uh, 14 and 15, after people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so um, when God initiates, as Jesus does here, and uh, again, Jesus is showing that he is doing God kind of things. As God did in the Exodus, so is Jesus doing here and caring for his people. When God initiates, we are forced to respond. And uh, this sign then is something that we, God is, Jesus is giving to us to interpret. Like we have to wrestle through and and, um, kind of think about that. And I encourage you to think about a sign is not a place to camp out. Uh, I love to go to national parks. And uh, one of my favorite things actually about, well, this isn't, I do enjoy this. It's not my favorite thing. But like you go to Yellowstone or Grand Tetons or, you know, National Park, like a big one that's, people will come and you'll see, uh, where do we go? Where do we go? uh, Yosemite. We went to Yosemite this summer and um, there's a big line for people standing, taking a picture by the sign of Yosemite. Like, or Yellowstone or whatever. And I mean, that's kind of cool. Like I've, you know, we're like a sign. I can remember one time we were like, I was on a road trip with some college friends and we got to cross the border of the state of Florida and we all took a picture right there at the sign. But a sign isn't a place to camp out. So those kind of pictures are actually kind of funny to me because you're not actually there, right? I mean, you might be in Florida, but you're not in what Florida means, right? Like beaches and whatever it is, else it is, like sunny. You go to Florida in October. I just went and it's lovely. I did not know Florida in October could be so amazing. But um, rather, we're supposed to go see the sign, get excited about it, but press on in and go to see the things that Yosemite is all about versus just like be like, here I'm the sign. All right, let's go home, guys. Um, okay, so uh, we, we do see then the, the crowd is modeling both right and wrong things for us, I suggest to you. First of all, they understand this is a sign, that this is not like, wow, this is bread man, but they're like, surely this is a prophet who is to come into the world. These are people who are reading their Old Testament, you know their Old Testament pretty well because the the prophet is probably a reference to something that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. And it's about one who is going to come. Moses was saying, there will be another one like me who would come. And when he comes, you need to listen to him because God is going to hold you accountable for that. And so they understood that what Jesus was was a sign. They understood that God had spoken through the scriptures about things he was going to do and who they would watch for. And uh, we don't get from John's narrator an evaluation whether or not Jesus is the prophet. Were they right about that? I have an opinion about it, but you, like John's narrator doesn't evaluate that for us. And so he certainly, we saw the Samaritan woman call him, uh, call Jesus a prophet to his face, and he didn't, he didn't correct her on that. Uh, let's see, uh, 4.10, no, 4.19. Sir, I can see you are a prophet. 
here they're saying you are the prophet, or he is the prophet. Um, but then what do they go on to do? Uh, Jesus, they were going to make him king by force, which is really kind of funny. Uh, were they rightly understanding him as a king? Well, partly because this is very kingly language, actually. That it, the what Philip, we can see through Philip's words, is that the meal that they received from him was actually worth a ton of money. Even that it was very humble and modest fare. And a king would probably, a king would not have that. They would have had nice bread and like probably fancy dishes and not, you know, it wouldn't be like picnic food. But he has them all sit down and it's like a banquet hall. And in the ancient near, in the fact that the little comment, did you find that interesting? There was much grass nearby. And the, that word grass suggests pasturage for sheep. Because it's not those kind of mountains. Like we think of the mountains like Rocky Mountains, but like it's in the uh, hills of Galilee, it's very rolling. And so uh, in the ancient Near East, shepherd and sheep is a very common metaphor for king and people. We can see that in Psalm 23, if you know that Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We navigate that and he, then he talks about near the end of that psalm about suddenly we find ourselves in a king's banquet hall. Right? Do you see that? that, that um, you can go and read that. So this is very kingly language. Um, and Jesus comes and like he's already there and he's sitting on the mountain. That is a position of authority. So they, they probably rightly glimpse that he is kingly. But of course, they're like, well, he can be king the way we want him to be a king because they had a plan. And they wanted Jesus to operate according to their plan. Jesus' plan, maybe we can say this, <laughs> will probably never conform to your plan and mine for whatever it is, the good life, what we're hoping, the solution to the problem uh, I've been facing today. So uh, I think this is a principle we can, uh, we can learn. Oh, we see, before we go to that, um, we see what Jesus does here. It's very kind, actually. Uh, he doesn't let them do that. He just withdraws. And he, we've seen Jesus reveal and conceal, and so he's concealing himself. Um, so a, a takeaway I think that we can learn from this passage is that uh, when God leads us into the wilderness, he has a plan. When God leads us into the wilderness, he has a plan. And the plan is most likely to show us himself and to train us to follow him and trust him, not maybe to fix what we think is wrong. And this was uh, today, I had actually even just sort of a family crisis, a family member who is going through a hard thing and, um, you know, and kind of pushed on the my my heart in ways that I'm like, I'm freaking out and I'm trying to write this lecture. And that that's why this is all handwritten. (laughs) I didn't get very far at all because I'm freaking out about this thing. And I'm just like, okay, I have this plan of like how this should work. So I need you, God, to fix this. And I need you to fix this and fix this because I have a plan and it's gonna go like that. And you know, Lord, it would be so good for everybody if things would just happen this way. And that was really sobering to come to this 
section and realize like, okay, Lord, what I, what I need, Lord, is in this hard place for you to show me yourself and help me trust you. So I wonder, are you in a wilderness space? Have you been in a wilderness space? Or things are kind of going out crazy and you feel like real needs that you have aren't being met. Real problems in your life. And what are your prayers, if you pray about that um, and you ask God about those things, uh, what do they suggest you understand about him? Who he is and what he might be using that wilderness space for? Isn't he so kind that he doesn't, even when we, when we, not if, when we believe wrong things about him, he doesn't, you know, come in and smack it down, but he lets us be in that space that we can learn and grow. What might it look like for you to ask him to help you trust him in that space and trust that whatever his plan is for you might be the better one, even if it might be the terrifying one that you might not get a job in a place that you want, that you might, that your relationship, like it might be broken up, that your grandma might not recover. Like those things that you're like pressing on, the person might fail that class. Like, like, well, help me be Help me learn, Lord. And maybe you're in a space where you just are, like you hadn't even thought to pray about. Like you're in a kind of wilderness, hard space. You don't have the resources to solve whatever your real needs are. Would you consider praying about it? Would you consider inviting God into that space and helping you see that there could be more from that wilderness than just the dry place that you thought it was. That there could be actually life there and it'd be good. Um, oh gosh, I'm out, way out of time. Okay, um, okay, well, what are we gonna do here? All right, uh, what? Let's just pray, shall we? Please pray. Lord, thank you so much for how you care for us. Thank you that uh, you do not abandon those who trust in you. And even when we are caught in storms and wilderness spaces, that you will not leave us there indefinitely. Would you help us to believe you are that kind of God? And uh, we pray, Lord, that, uh, yeah, you would continue to care for us and show us Jesus. Help us to have changed likes and loves that we would uh, desire more the things that are better and richer and gooder than um, the lesser things that maybe we valued as much right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.